welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale. On this episode, we welcome Dr. Daniel Swain. Dr. Swain is a climate scientist with multiple affiliations, and we'll get to those in a little bit, but the TLDR on Dr. Swain is he is a highly regarded and widely read and widely disseminated expert in the extreme weather and extreme climate phenomena that grip and afflict California. In fact, I would bet that if you have read anything about weather or climate, particularly extreme weather or climate in California in the last 12 months, then you have probably read a quote or perspective of some kind in one or more of those articles from Daniel Swain. Now, I want to go ahead and uh, list his affiliations. These are his titles. In fact, when we did the sound check for this episode, I said, okay, uh, Dr. Swain, please let me know. uh, Go ahead to get the proper levels. Let's get your name, uh, your title, and the most recent meal you had. And... Dr. Swain said, I'll tell you what, I'm just gonna give you my title. I think you'll get all the sound you need. And he was right because he is a climate scientist in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA, as well as a research fellow at the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, where he's based, and at the Nature Conservancy of California. The credentials obviously speak for themselves. And along with these credentials, I think another reason why he is in such demand in media circles, like, you know, the New York Times recently featured him in an article, Uh, Vice profiled him at the end of 2020. Obviously, he's on this show. It's because he makes these topics both accessible to the layperson. I think they're fairly easy to understand or at least compelling enough to want to understand more. And I'm also not gripped with existential terror when I uh, consume the work that Daniel Swain does. It's very straightforward and clear, and it allows you to kind of draw your own conclusions. And it's uh, often accompanied with graphics and illustrations and uh, interpretations that kind of decode the immediate and long-term climate forecast for California and the West more generally. In fact, Dr. Swain is based in Boulder, which makes him the first what is California guest to not actually be on the show from California. But he is a native Californian and he spent most of his life here, uh, was fully educated here. And we're going to talk about how he wound up in Boulder studying California and researching California for an audience around the world. We talk a little bit about the kind of underrepresented or underrated phenomena that people don't necessarily think about a lot. We think about drought, of course, we think about uh, heat waves. But one thing that Dr. Swain brought to my attention that I had heard a little bit about was floods and how the ways that climate is shaping up in the future is that we have basically two seasons, whereas summer will kind of absorb Uh, spring and autumn, which Dr. Swain calls shoulder seasons. There will be a kind of this very, very long summer with its extreme conditions. And then we'll have concentrated bursts of precipitation and snow in the winter. So the levels of precipitation won't necessarily change. They'll just be highly concentrated, which will result in potential flooding. So that's a phenomenon that is kind of underreported in the discussion about climate in California, but uh, Dr. Swain's going to tell all of us a little bit more about 
that and what we can, you know, watch out for, for better or worse. And of course, you know, we talk a little bit about the difficulty of climate action in the present day and what it means for someone in this line of work, climate science, when there is so much bad news and how you mitigate that and how you think about it and how you process it on a human level. It was a very, very enlightening and interesting conversation. I look forward to sharing it with you. Anyway, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Quick vibe check. How is everyone doing? Um, I know that there's an NFC championship game coming up this weekend between the, the Los Angeles Rams and the San Francisco 49ers. An all-California NFC championship game should be a hoot. Did you hear what Ticketmaster did? Evidently, Ticketmaster made uh, the original sales of tickets for the NFC championship game in Los Angeles available only to people with zip codes in the general LA area. Because when the Niners played the Rams before this season in an NFC West matchup, <laughs> there was just a bunch of Niners fans and the home team fans didn't show up. Can you imagine in LA, the fans not showing up? But uh, yeah, there you have it. And so uh, I'm being facetious there. Yes, of course, the fans didn't show up. No offense, LA, but come on. I mean, what happened there? So now Ticketmaster has to kind of give the LA Rams fans a little bit of a boost to make sure that that stadium isn't completely overrun with uh, red and gold. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. It's going to be an amazing game. Uh, I'm probably not going to watch it because I'm kind of boycotting the NFL for a variety of reasons I won't get into here. But I always I'm always happy to see California supremacy reign on the national sports stage uh, in any way, shape or form, because those East Coasters, they get all the love, they get all the attention. And when we see California teams or West Coast teams kind of dominating this way, it's just very gratifying, you know, to see the kind of East Coast sports media elite have to talk about California for a change. That East Coast bias isn't as prominent probably in sports as it is in, you know, culture and politics, perhaps in arts, but nevertheless, uh, I'll take whatever uh, bias on the West Coast I can get because it's rare and it's gratifying. If you have thoughts about this or anything else that you'd like to weigh in on, please don't hesitate to email me, hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would love to hear from you. Thanks to those of you who have written in over the last week after the season two premiere. It's been great to hear from you, especially those of you who are reading the newsletter at Substack, whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Seeing a lot of great pickup on the newsletter. Thank you so much for subscribing. Thank you so much for reading, especially those weekend links that come out every Friday. Those are free. Uh, it's free to subscribe. doesn't cost you a dime, and I'm happy to send that to you and get us thinking about all the cool, crazy, and compelling stuff that's happening in this wonderful state we call California. And now, without further ado, here is me with Daniel Swain on What is California? Enjoy. Dr. Daniel Swain, welcome to What is California? It's so great to have you here. I want to talk about your work and your research around climate and weather in California. But first, let's start with your California story. Are, are you from California originally? I am indeed. I was born in San Francisco. And what was your path through California over the years? 
Well, although I'm not in California at present, I lived in California for most of my life um, in, in the Bay Area for much of it. Uh, I, I, I grew up in, in San Rafael for, for the most part uh, after a few years in San Francisco. And then I went to college at UC Davis, so spent some time in the Central Valley. Got my PhD at Stanford, so moved down the peninsula, uh, and then uh, got my postdoc at UCLA. So did some time in Los Angeles County. And these days, I still have a lot of California ties, but I currently live and work in Boulder, Colorado. So how do you cover or study or research California from Boulder? Well, I'm a climate scientist, and so what we do is often very much in the clouds, uh, and, and I mean that both literally and figuratively, in the sense that when you're taking the, the top-down uh, approach to thinking about how the atmosphere, often what you're using are observations that are gathered and assimilated using these broader uh, tools, so say satellites or databases that include many thousands of individual weather stations or climate models, these, these mathematical tools that are run on supercomputers. And so these days uh, in modern atmospheric science, uh, generally you can do that kind of work from almost anywhere. Uh, because these data exist um, in the cloud, even the data about the clouds are in the cloud if you will. And so uh, one of the reasons I'm personally in Boulder as opposed to somewhere else right now is that's the home of the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is really an international uh, locus for climate and atmospheric studies. So it's one of the few towns in the world where you, where you walk up to a random person on the street or you're in a coffee shop and, and it's pretty likely you'll hear uh, conversations about atmospheric dynamics and weather and climate models just casually because a lot of these people are scientists who work in the field. What's your earliest memory of California? I think my earliest memory of California, it's vague and fuzzy because I was very, very young, but I actually think it's the Oakland Hills fire in the early 1990s. And I was not old enough to really, I think, uh, gather any of the real details. But what I remember is being out with my dad uh, at one of the city parks in San Francisco and seeing the sky turn this weird color in the afternoon and ha ash was starting to fall, kind of like snow. There were pretty large pieces of of, of ash and even burned paper falling from the sky. So that was actually one of my first memories uh, of, in, in California was, was that sort of uh, at a very early age didn't, you know, I, I didn't have context for it at the time, but of course it means a lot more in retrospect. For sure. How old were you? I think I would have been about like three years old or so. So very young. So it really is one of my first memories. Aside from that, I mean, I can see why that would be indelible. Do you have another most enduring or significant memory of California from your life in the state? Well, for me, you know, a lot of the, my memories of California are sort of, I've always been a bit of a weather geek. And so they're all sort of episodically aligned with big weather and climate events. Um, so one of some of the things that I remember, you know, are the, the big uh, El Nino storms of, you know, from the late 90s or some of the specific wildfire years. Of course, now every year is a major wildfire year, it seems, in California. But those were the kinds of things that I sort of remembered 
over time as somebody who was really paying attention um, you know, to the, to the, to the sky and the atmosphere and the earth system. And so for me personally, those are the kinds of markers in my life that, that, that are really, um, that really have stuck with me over the years. And you have lived up and down the state. So how has the geography of California impacted or affected who you are? I mean, whether it's, you know, a landscape or a building or just a, a particular place. I think the fact that California's geography is as varied as it is uh, has been really influential because even you know staying within the state boundaries, you can you can sort of experience almost anything geographically, and you know that was something I I did seek out. Um, going to sort of the the I hesitate to call them weird places, but the the roads less traveled, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, not just the 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 famous and argue justifiably so um, interesting natural landmarks, you know, in Yosemite or the Golden Gate or or Death Valley or something like that, but also sort of the you know the the more subtle. Um, you know, the winding roads in northeastern California when you're on the east side of the Sierra Crest or when you're, you know, I actually really came to find the, the Sacramento Valley, the more agricultural parts of it uh, to be a really interesting place to be. That was something I sort of explored when I was in Davis. And I think it's, I think people who don't live in the Central Valley often forget that there is this uh, mini Great Plains, uh, if you will, um, sandwiched in between San, San Francisco and Tahoe. Um, and if you just drive on Highway 80, uh, I think you you sometimes miss um, a lot of what's out there and sort of the, the geographic and, and the cultural context of having this enormous region that's flat, largely devoted to agriculture um, and is you know, culturally really distinct from the coastal cities in almost every way. So for me, you know, the, the fact that you, you you can have that experience along a transect of California that's maybe only 100, 150 miles wide has always been uh, pretty extraordinary. Do you have a favorite California place, either in the valley or elsewhere? It sort of depends what mood you're in, um, where you want to be. Um, you know, I grew up in the North Bay, and so one of my one of my favorite places there is Mount Tamalpais and the state park there, um, because it's you know it's a really conspicuous mountain. It feels like it's much taller than it is because it rises right out of the ocean, and it's the tallest thing you know in any direction for quite some distance. So it's you know it's it's a landmark, but it's also um, uh, you know a, a really cool place in the sense that it's uh, it's very accessible, um, but it feels like you're you're somewhere very remote. What do you do as a climate scientist? So being a climate scientist actually means something fairly different to different climate scientists because it can really refer to a bunch of different kinds of actual topical domains. So some climate scientists study the carbon cycle and the biogeochemistry of the planet and how different constituents sort of enter the the, the living world and then the inert um, you know, go go from being in a in a plant or an animal into the soil, into the ocean, and then back. Um, in my case, what I study is the atmosphere itself. So you can kind of think of me as a meteorologist, but on long time scales. In fact, one of the things I was originally uh, wanting to do when I got my undergraduate degree in atmospheric science was weather forecasting. Um, I, w- I did not seek, a, uh, seek out climate science initially. Uh, it was something that sort of came later. 
Um, and I think it's, you know, it sort of informed my particular approach to climate science is I'm, I'm, I'm almost a, a weather scientist embedded in a climate science world. So I think a lot about um, episodic weather events and the kinds of things that we actually experience day to day and how that fits into the broader context of how the planet's climate is changing. And so, you know, as a climate scientist, I try and put those two things together. I think about, you know, what are the kinds of things about the weather that are most relevant to our daily experience, most relevant to society and the environment, and then put that in the context of the broader changes that we're seeing. And so, you know, practically what that means is looking at uh, observations of, of lots of different kinds of atmospheric variables, temperature, precipitation, etc. It also means using what are known as climate models. So these are these gigantic uh, mathematical tools, these huge systems of equations uh, that are run on supercomputers all around the world. Um, some of these are actually at NCAR, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm in Boulder. Um, but these the combination of these tools, uh, looking at observations from the real world, looking at these uh, simulations or, 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 or predictions from the, these mathematical modeling tools, uh, and sort of reading between the lines sometimes, um, connecting those two things. You know, where where are observations telling us something different than our our tool, our modeling tools are telling us? Where are they consistent, and what can we learn about how things have already changed and how they're likely to change in the future? Now, just for the record, for the uninitiated among whom I'd probably count myself, what is the difference between climate and weather? The difference between climate and weather is important, but I sometimes think it's overemphasized. And really the reason for this is that both weather and climate refer to the characteristics of atmospheric phenomena. The main difference is on the temporal and spatial scales that are relevant in each case. So you can talk about today's weather in a particular place, and it makes sense. Is it sunny and warm today in San Francisco, or is it cold and raining? You can't talk about today's climate in the same way because you can't define the climate of today. You have to think about the climate uh, this decade or over these few decades, and very likely not just in one place, but across a broader region. So, you know, climate um, is sort of the, the view you get when you squint a little bit at weather uh, over space and time. I like to say that climate is weather in aggregate. It isn't that weather doesn't play a role in climate. It's just that you can't look at one weather event and say anything about climate. You have to look at a wide range of weather events, the full distribution of weather events. And often you have to look at slightly broader regions than you would otherwise. Got it. So how did you get interested in climate science and the weather, especially, you know, researching it to the extent you do and interpreting it the way you do for audiences? I've been interested in weather really for as long as I can remember. You know, it was sort of a, a, an experience growing up. It was something I paid a lot of attention to. Um, but climate, uh, you know, is, that's that's a bit different. That's something I really didn't uh, become interested in until I was in uh, college and getting my uh, degree in atmospheric science when I thought I wanted to be a weather forecaster. And then moving on from that point, I think what became clear to me right around then um, was just how many important questions there were about how climate 
change was going to affect the weather and how there often weren't great answers. You know, it's obvious that the climate is getting warmer, but what does that really mean in the context of the kinds of day-to-day -day events that matter to people and that are in, that were that were both personally interesting to me and I think are also arguably more societally relevant than something like global mean temperature, which is a useful heuristic, but is ultimately a statistical construct. Neither you nor I nor anyone is ever going to personally experience the global mean temperature, for example, but we will experience individual heat waves in specific places or storm events in particular areas, for example. And so for me, you know, it was that it was that personal and professional interest in the weather combined with the acknowledgement and the realization, I guess, that climate change was going to pose all sorts of major societal problems that we weren't even beginning uh, to address yet. And so it was that combination of an interesting scientific problem combined with the um, societal relevance of its connection with the broader global issue that I think really brought me into the field. You have a pretty prominent profile on social media. Of course, you have your popular blog, um, well-established blog, Weather West. Did you always want to have this kind of public profile as you started to get familiar with climate and weather and kind of interpret it this way at this scale? You know, it's funny. That's definitely something I did not set out to do. Um, one of the jokes I always made when I thought I wanted to be a weather forecaster was I definitely don't want to be on TV. That's not the kind <laughs> of meteorology that I want to right. do. Yeah. Um, and it almost was happenstance, the fact that it really went this way. Um, sort of some chance encounters and coincidentally uh, studying something, you know, when I was doing my PhD dissertation that was topically relevant and in the news, um, a bunch of opportunities sort of led up to it. Um, I just sort of jumped into it, said, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. Trial by fire, you know, almost 10 years later, uh, you know, here we are. And um, now I spend a lot of time speaking with journalists and doing science writing and doing a lot of public outreach. And I'm lucky that my, you know, my official role, uh, my hybrid role across these different institutions, you know, the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and NCAR and the Nature Conservancy uniquely blends the research and the outreach and the media connections in a way that would be difficult otherwise. Um, there aren't a lot of official scientific roles that give that level of flexibility and allow you to spend that much time having these sorts of conversations uh, with audiences that aren't scientific audiences um, explicitly. And so I, I, I'm lucky that I, that I, you know, that I've, I'm in a position these days uh, to have those conversations. So when did you start your blog, Weather West? Oh boy, I think it was probably 2005 or 2006. So that's been around now for um, 16 years or so, I think. So it's it's been around for a long time. I guess I guess that was sort of the the golden age of blogging. Right. Yeah. Blogs are already um, they they already feel a little bit old, but in some ways it's a it's still a really useful format for certain kinds of communication. Oh, absolutely. And your blog was or is still a hyper relevant source for information about weather and climate. And just how old were you when you started Weather West? That would it wasn't when I was in high school. So um, that was <laughs> oh, prior wow. to any formal scientific credentials. Um, so, you know, the, the quality, I think, uh, <laughs> hopefully has improved um, since then. 
yeah. But it's it's been around for a long time, and it was for me. It was just originally just a personal outlet for my interest in in weather that you know my peers at the time didn't necessarily share, uh, but there definitely were people out there you know in California who did. Did you have people in high school actually saying, Daniel, is it going to rain today, tomorrow, next week? Like, what's the forecast? Occasionally, but that much more so today. Um, um, <laughs> okay. So that's that's uh, that's that's a pretty common question. Um, Makes sense. I mean, you are a weather forecaster. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it means I have to pay a little more attention. Um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes when you study study this kind of stuff, you can miss the day to day and then be caught, you know, unawares without an umbrella, and then you feel really, uh, really stupid because you, you really, of all people, should have known better. What particular climate phenomena are you interested in, and and why was California, or why is California an ideal place to follow those phenomena? Well, these days I study a wide range of atmospheric phenomena. I would call them atmospheric extremes uh, in the context of climate change. And that actually is a pretty wide range of physical uh, events um, in un under that umbrella, um, really ranging from the kinds of atmospheric patterns that lead to drought, so these persistent ridges of high pressure, um, one of which California is under uh, as we're doing having this conversation today and this in the midst of this really long uh, midwinter dry spell. In California, um, equally uh, the kinds of patterns that lead to uh, extreme flood events. In fact, our, our next big analysis, the, the manuscript that's that's uh, up on my computer screen today, is about the rising risk of a California mega flood in a warming climate. So at the opposite end of the hydroclimatic spectrum, and then we also have the kinds of, of weather and climate uh, events that lead to extreme wildfires, which obviously we've seen a lot more of, uh, unfortunately, in recent years, not just in California, but but throughout the West. And so the, the sort of the unifying theme there is that there are uh, far from normal atmospheric patterns that lead to all of these things, droughts, floods, wildfires. And so I'm interested in studying uh, the anomalies in the climate system and how they're changing. Got it. So how do you work to make these concepts and phenomena accessible for an audience in California so they can be aware of it as well? Well, sometimes it's actually easier than it sounds because unfortunately, California has recently had lots of uh, up close and personal experience with the impacts of these sorts of extremes. I, I don't think I have to reach far, very far back into anyone's memory to you know, imagine what it would require, what would be required for a, you know, a severe drought. Well, we, we all, everyone just lived through it. Um, you know, imagine how, what it would be like to be in an extreme atmospheric river storm. Well, that also happened within the past few months, and, you know, um, extreme wildfires all the way back to last summer. So in some ways, it's, it's all too easy to convince people in California that, the, that these sorts of events are, uh, you know, that they're real and happening and in many cases increasing. Um, but the, uh, you know, the flip side to that is actually explaining the physical causes, the, you know, the underlying dynamics for these sorts of uh, atmospheric uh, extremes. And that can be a little bit more tricky, partly because in some cases, it's not always entirely clear on the scientific side exactly why certain certain things happen when they do. We certainly understand, for example, that the California droughts are proximally caused by these persistent ridges that result in, uh, you know, it deflects the storm track away, pushes the rain storms away, keeps things warmer. 
floods are caused by either very intense or very persistent atmospheric river storms. So, you know, we understand that, you know, the severe wildfires are usually caused by strong offshore wind events and very dry vegetation conditions. So in that sense, the proximal causes are, are not mysteries, right, but right. exactly what the sequence of events that leads up to those and how those are changing over time, that's where a lot of the interesting science is these days. And so that's where a lot of the more nuanced conversations sort of emerge. So how does 2022 look in terms of climate in California? Maybe we can start where you just mentioned the um, like rain and precipitation and drought. You recently told the New York Times, uh, quote, we're definitely still in the drought in California, and we almost certainly will be in a drought over the rest of the year, end quote. So how serious is this drought compared to recent years? Well, as of the early autumn in 2021, before this present rainy season started, California was in a historically severe drought, essentially the worst drought since records began. Um, it was kind of tied with uh, 2014, uh, which was previously set the record for the, the, the worst drought on record historically. And we sort of got there again less than a decade later, which is a little bit alarming. Um, then we got really lucky this past autumn. Uh, with an incredibly strong uh, atmospheric river, just one really big rain event in October that brought the wettest day on record to a broad swath of Northern California. So Sacramento went from having its longest dry spell on record to one week later having its wettest day on record. Uh, pretty extraordinary amount of what we uh, have been calling precipitation whiplash. I was out there with my shop vac in the garage, getting the water out of there. I remember vividly, that was crazy. Yeah, so October was was weird and fortuitous because it, it sort of short-circuited. Um, maybe that's not the best uh, <laughs> the best metaphor. It, it ended fire season earlier than it's ended in a lot of recent years. You know, there, there, there was not much fire risk in Northern California, at least after uh, October. Um, and like previous years when, you know, we've had fires discontinuing into November and sometimes even into December, we have of course seen a couple of fires this month, a little bit farther to the South, but it's still not quite the same thing as, you know, the peak fire season. You know, we then had a, a dry November, but then another really wet and cold December in late 2021. So, you know, between October and December, 2021, we got a decent dose of drought relief, particularly because December brought a lot of snow and snow is very important. Um, it does matter whether that precipitation falls as liquid rain or solid snow. But now, you know, we're in January, which has been in some parts of the state, a completely dry month, 0.00 inches of precipitation. And we're looking forward into February and the rest of the season with an expectation that it's more likely than not, the conditions will continue to be drier than average. So. Oof. We oh, sort of man. went into the season in dire straits. You know, we got bailed out uh, at the last minute in the autumn. Uh, and now we're starting to slide backward a bit again. So, we, you know, the, what happened in the autumn essentially transformed California from a place um, experiencing a, an extreme to historically severe drought to a merely severe drought as of December and January. And that is likely where we will remain for much of the year. If it's really dry the next couple of months, it act, we could trend back towards extreme drought. If we get a reprieve in late February or in March, miracle March, which, you know, it has happened before, mm -hmm. um, we might be in better shape. But I think 
One thing that I always like to emphasize when we talk about drought in California is that although precipitation is obviously really important, it's not the only factor that matters. It does also matter how warm it is. Temperatures increasingly are driving drought impacts in this part of the world. And that's one of the issues is that as temperatures rise, you, you would actually need an ever increasing amount of rain and snow to compensate for the effects of this increasing evaporative demand in a warming world. And although California's average precipitation isn't decreasing, it also isn't increasing. And so it's getting easier and easier to slip back into these severe drought conditions simply on the basis of how much warmer it is these days than it was even a few decades ago. When you mentioned snow, you know, brought to mind this study that was published last fall that suggested that low or no snow winters could be the norm in California by 2050. So it's like just raining at these summits. It, that study it made the rounds, it stirred quite a bit of panic at the moment. I mean, did you see that study? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think that was a study that came out of UC Berkeley in the last couple of months. Yeah, was it reasonable? Was the, I guess, the panic around it reasonable? What was your sense? Yeah, I think it was a really insightful study. I have no reason to doubt the the, the results. Um, I think it. I think the results in certain um, media settings may have been somewhat misinterpreted, uh, in the sense that there seemed to be a, a notion that it you know that this paper was suggesting that within a couple of decades there just wouldn't be any snow anymore in the mountains. Period. And what it was really saying was that. What we're going to start to see are a lot more years like 2013, 2014, which if you remember that season in the mountains, there was almost no snow, even at the summits. You know, in January and February, you could go out and, you know, hike above the tree line, uh, you know, in short sleeves uh, in January uh, because there was no snow on the ground. It was warm. It was sunny. That is the kind of thing we're going to see happening. You know, it, it was the first time really in, 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 in a long time uh, that it had happened when it happened in 2014. We're going to start to see our decades where we see several of those years, sometimes several of those years in a row. And that's a radical transformation from the kinds of reliable mountain snowpack that we have seen you know, for most of the 20th century on, and on which most of California's uh, urban areas developed, uh, its water infrastructure is predicated on this relatively reliable mountain snowpack. So we'll still get some big snow years. And even in the last decade, we've had a couple of really big snow years, even as the, over, the average amount of snow declines and as the frequency of very low snow years increases. And so I think what we will start to see are more and more years where there is little to no snow, as that paper uh, prognosticates for the future, but that we will still get occasional really big snow years. And so that variability is actually going to be really difficult to manage, both practically and also ecologically, uh, because obviously from a water supply perspective, that is problematic if we rely on snowmelt for a lot of our, our, our reservoir storage. It's problematic you know, if you're, if you're an outdoor recreation uh, winter sports enthusiast or a ski resort operator because you know what is the viability of that sort of enterprise if you have multiple years in a row every decade where you can't do that for most of the year or at all and then of course ecologically the the implications are maybe even more profound because you know you may have species that are drought tolerant or drought adapted up to a point 
but they still need cold temperatures and at least several months of continuous snowpack in a lot of cases if that's the kind of region they were living in or the, or the places you know that had that historically and so if you remove that even two or three years per decade you suddenly start to see some transformations in all of these systems and so i think that you know i think that the that study the reality is is every bit as as stark as as portrayed even though i think that the actual findings were a little bit misinterpreted in, in, in other circles back to temperatures what do we know about high temperatures that we can expect this year 2022 you know it's funny seasonal predictions are really hard um still it's sort of the, the gray zone actually we have great weather forecasts these days in general up to a week to 10 days and sometimes even a little bit longer we have uh high confidence in long-term climate projections looking at a few decades for kinds of things like you know temperature increases and snow decreases and changes in precipitation seasonality things like that but in the middle the zone where a lot of us would really like to have better information out between about three months out and 10 years into the future, there's very little we can say uh, other than the information that we get from that long-term uh, climate change trend. And so it's difficult to say whether the summer will be particularly hot relative to recent summers, other than it's pretty clear that it will, ver it's, that it will be warmer than the 20th century average. That much I, I, I would bet a lot of money on. But whether it's you know warmer or cooler than some of these recent record warm years, uh, remains to be seen uh, because that year-to-year -year variability remains pretty difficult to predict. Although, you know, again, I, I, I would not be surprised, you know, if we see um, hotter and hotter summers moving forward because that is the direction things are headed. The other interesting element to that is that last year, 2021, for example, was in most parts of California the warmest summer on record, but you wouldn't have known it if you were in most of California's densely populated urban areas along the coast. It was not by any means the warmest summer on record in San Francisco or LA. Huh. It just was across most of the land area. And so that's another reminder, I think, that where most people live in California is often very different from the kinds of climate conditions and the geography that exists across most of the rest of the state. So where most people live is not where the water falls not where a lot of the climate changes are most dramatic. So with fire, we hear increasingly that fire season never really ends in California. I mean, there's literally a San Francisco Chronicle article recently with that headline uh, or that, you know, fire season is year round. And I mean, even as we speak right now in late January, there's a wildfire burning in Big Sur. Uh, luckily, I think it's approaching containment, which is nice, but it's still a January wildfire in Big Sur. Obviously, a lot of factors play into all of this forest management, utilities maintenance, but obviously weather and climate play into it. So what are some of the ways that climate might play into a never ending fire season as we're seeing in California, whether it's drought, lightning, winds, all of the above? Well, I'd first point out that it's definitely true that fire season is lengthening pretty dramatically, both here in California and really everywhere where there are distinct fire seasons in a warming climate. This is actually a pretty widespread phenomena. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the, re the main reason is that as temperatures rise, you start to get summer-like or, or, or warm season-like conditions that encroach on the winter on either end. So you get autumn conditions that are increasingly like what summer used to be like, and also spring conditions that are become increasingly summer-like as well. 
And so you have this narrower and narrower, in the, in the case of California, you know, a winter wet season. Yeah. And if you have a long enough dry spell in that winter wet season, like we're having right now, you can actually see the, the, the emergence of fires. Or in the case of last year, when we didn't have all of that autumn precipitation, we never really saw fire season end. There were fires burning really all the way from summer into autumn into winter. I mean, last summer there were fires in the Santa Cruz Mountains in January, which in some ways is a lot more extraordinary than what we're seeing right now um, hmm. further south. Okay. Uh, and so the main link between climate change and wildfires broadly um, is not, to our knowledge, changes in the winds themselves or necessarily even in lightning ignitions. It's changes in the aridity of the landscape and the associated dryness of the vegetation. So in other words, you know, it, it, it's true virtually everywhere that the more, the more arid, the drier the vegetation becomes in a particular place, the more flammable it becomes. It's not just a switch that you flip on and off. Either it's dry enough to burn or it's too damp. There, there is that switch, but beyond it, there's also a spectrum of dry enough to burn, but it's not going to burn as intensely, or it won't burn completely. You know, the dry parts of it will burn, the, the wetter parts won't burn. The more you dry out equivalent vegetation, the more intense the fires that can occur in that landscape become. And it's not just a matter of them being hotter when they burn, it's also a matter of them moving more quickly, spreading more quickly over larger areas, having a greater propensity to create their own extreme weather conditions because that's dependent on how hot the fire is burning. The hotter it is, the bigger the differential between that fire and its surroundings, the more likely it is to create its own extreme wind patterns, its own, you know, storm clouds, essentially. We've seen, you've seen these reports in recent years about the growing frequency of these pyrocumulonimbus clouds, these fire-generated thunderstorms, which in California in recent summers and autumns, they have created lightning and even tornadoes it's from the fire itself. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and so all of this is a function of the character of the fire. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I keep emphasizing to a lot of folks, it's not so much that we're seeing too many fires. In fact, some might even argue we're, we're, we see too few fires. But the problem is we're seeing far too many very intense fires that cause a lot of harm to people and to ecosystems. They, they destroy homes. They kill people. They result in ecosystem transformations that would not have occurred for lower intensity fires. And so in the climate fire nexus, it's the intensity and the character of these fires that are increasingly becoming the problem more so than the, than the number of fires. Let's look at the long term. How much trouble would you say California is in climate wise? Let's say on a scale of one to 10 with one being relax, everything's fine maximum comfort and security uh and 10 being <laughs> pack run <laughs> and this is gonna be literally uninhabitable in 25 years like where would you say we fall right now well i don't think we're either at one or ten i i i guess maybe on that scale maybe a six seven so um in the upper half of the scale for sure um and it's often not uh, for, it's not always for the reasons that, that some folks might assume though. Uh, and I think a lot of folks assume that California is just, you know, going to become a, you know, the whole state's going to become a desert. The rain is just going to stop. It's not going to rain anymore. There'll be no water. And that's not consistent with what any of the evidence shows, interestingly. 
um, because it's, you know, it's very obvious that California is getting warmer and that it's going to continue to get warmer. So temperatures will increase. This mean snowpack will decrease. We'll see some of these really low snow years with occasional big snow years, but on average, there'll be a lot less. The overall average precipitation in California is not expected to change very much. And despite the increase in drought severity in recent decades, it hasn't changed very much yet. So we've seen this explosion in wildfires and drought severity without any meaningful decrease in the overall mean precipitation. And so everyone just gives me crazy looks and says, how can that possibly be? Yeah, I mean, how can that be? Well, it's because A, the direct effect of rising temperatures, the same amount of water doesn't go as far. So if we get the same amount of rain and snow falling from the sky, but more of it is evaporating more quickly back up into the sky, then there just isn't enough, there isn't as much water on the ground. There isn't as much water in the soil, in the rivers, lakes, and reservoirs as there used to be for the same amount of precipitation. So part of it is just the direct effect of warming. The other thing that's going on is that the temporal characteristics of precipitation are changing, even though the mean amount isn't. And this is something we expect to continue to amplify moving forward. And so by this, I mean, California has, you know, a classic dry summer, wet winter seasonality. That's, that's always been true. And that probably isn't going to change. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is that it's going to become even more amplified and we're likely to lose our shoulder seasons. So the autumn and the spring are likely to become increasingly much like summer. The winter is still going to feel like winter, but spring and fall are going to be much warmer and likely much drier. The only way for the math to work out though, if our overall precipitation isn't going to change according to, to predictions, is that means that the winter actually has to experience more intense precipitation. So we get less precipitation, less frequent precipitation in the shoulder seasons, spring and fall, but more intense precipitation if less frequent precipitation in the winter. So that means that we're sort of doing two things. We're increasing the length of the dry season. So there's more and more days in the calendar year when there's lots of evaporation and warm temperatures. There are fewer days with rainfall, but there's also more days with very intense rainfall, like what we saw this past October. Right. And so this, this, this is that precipitation whiplash that I mentioned earlier. The idea that the variability of precipitation is increasing and we're getting a compressed seasonality but an amplified intensity when it does rain and when it does snow. And all of that means that the water that we're getting, we're still getting that water, but it's being delivered in a way that's less and less helpful from a water supply and from an ecosystem health perspective. And so we get more severe droughts, even as the overall amount of precipitation stays about the same and as the risk of floods increases. So I'm every bit as much worried about the increased risk of flood in a warming California as I am about the increase in the risk of drought. In fact, both of these are likely increasing hand in hand, but one of them is sneakier than the other. One of them is sort of subtly increasing in the background because it's rarer. We've seen a lot of drought recently. I don't think anybody needs to be told twice that California is seeing more severe droughts in a warming climate but I think it's less obvious on the flood side. And so a lot of our current work focuses precisely on quantifying that exact issue of this increased variability and also the increased in risk uh, on, on the flood side of the spectrum as well. And so sometimes it's not exactly for the reasons that you think. 
Um, but I think that there are some there are some major challenges ahead when it comes to California water and sort of weathering these these increasingly extreme swings. As you think of these extreme swings and you study these phenomena, I mean, do you feel the same kind of climate anxiety that maybe the layperson might feel as they observe what's happening in California? I guess what they read in the news, for example. And I mean, how do you how do you mitigate or, or manage for that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I yes, I think to some extent, yes, because I think more than anybody else, climate scientists are acutely aware of exactly, you know, how big a change you know, a two or three degree increase in global mean temperature is, it sounds so small, right? Like two or three degrees, that's like not even, that's smaller than the difference between today and tomorrow's weather, right? So, you know, who cares is often the response that I get. But I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I have the focus that I do within climate science is it characterizing these changes in these episodic weather extremes that really matter, the droughts, the floods, the storms, the wildfires, things like that for better or for worse, that makes me acutely aware of those sorts of things. And I pay a lot of attention to them, you know, when they happen in California or in the West or, you know, in other parts of the world, because, you know, I, I, I think a lot about the dynamics of how they're occurring and why they're occurring and where we might be headed with them. And when, you know, when, when you see, and someone in my position sees an event that pushes a region or a location um, or even just a group of people to sort of the 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 brink in some way or another you know if it if it really disrupts society in a profound way or if there's a really devastating event um, you know when you lose 10,000 homes in a, in a single wildfire for example when there's a drought that is historically severe um, that really makes me think about what what it's going to be like in a few decades when we have something that's worse than that. Um, you know, when, since there, there will be, you know, fires in the future that are worse than the fires of today, there will be droughts that are more severe. So what does that actually mean in tangible, practical terms, you know, to see all the people who are suffering from this iteration of an event that, you know, could actually be worse and to think, that's both very sobering and alarming, but also it really encourages you to work with people to make sure that the outcomes in the future are better than the outcomes that we've seen recently. And so how do we how do we fix some of the structural problems that allowed these you know extreme events to become human disasters? Because the disaster is not necessarily an inevitable part of an extreme event. It's the classic, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, kind of framing. Um, you know, if you have a, a flash flood in an uninhabited desert, it's not causing anybody any problems. But if you have a, you know, the arc storm scenario in, in the Central Valley and, and you, you know, you, you exceed the capacity of, of, the, of the levees in Sacramento, that's a whole different question. And so, you know, I think a lot about what recent experience tells us about, you know, the urgency of addressing the problems that we're going to clearly face in the decades to come. All right. So what would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces and how can it be surmounted? You know, I think that a lot of the big challenges in California that appear to be totally distinct from climate change, uh, 
at least at first glance, maybe aren't. You know, we talk about the housing affordability crisis, the homelessness crisis, you know, lots of different issues related to equity, um, you know, in, in, the, in, in society, in the economy. And the more you look at it, you know, the more you realize that these things are intimately tied to, you know, the natural environment in ways that are sometimes surprising. I mean, you think about, you know, okay, well, what is what does climate change possibly have to do with the housing crisis? Well, uh, in certain communities, you know, when you suddenly lose 10 to 30% of the housing stock overnight, that is a major crisis, uh, even absent, you know, any pre-existing conditions. When you have people who are, you know, financially in a financially precarious situation, um, and then a disaster comes along and destroys their home or wipes out their savings, um, that might, you know, push people past a point of no return. You know, if you don't have a, a safety net, um, that can be the event that precipitates, you know, worse outcomes. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's it's actually difficult to disentangle a lot of the major issues that exist in society today. I mean, there's, you know, in thinking about the pandemic, for example, I mean, a lot of my colleagues in the science communication realm are public health people or virologists or epidemiologists. And occasionally we commiserate about the fact that, you know, the, the, the challenges that face epidemiologists and climate scientists are sometimes strikingly parallel in the sense, you know, that there is this, um, this real issue in society today where, where truth is seemingly partisan, where, where, where you fall on the political spectrum often dictates, you know, with very high degree of predictability, what your views are on things that are ostensibly factual, um, not how to deal with these problems, but even the existence of a particular issue in society is something that is strongly dictated by, you know, political ideology. And so in that sense, we have the situation where um, it's one thing to disagree about how to solve a problem, but we get into a really tricky situation where there isn't sort of a, uh, a shared reality about what currently exists in the world today. You know, it points to the challenges in in finding or agree, at least agreeing on uh, solutions to any number of these major problems, because there are going to be a lot of people who have very different views on where to go with these things and even whether or not certain problems exist. I mean, when, even if you just narrow it down to something relatively straightforward, like water, is California in a drought? If you're in an urban area and you have access to municipal water supplies, you probably could go about your daily life without noticing we're in a drought. Mm -hmm. The water is going to keep coming out of the taps. If you live off the land, if you're a farmer, if your home was destroyed in a wildfire, there's no question we're in a severe drought. And so that's that that is an actual difference in the in the objective reality just between places within California, let alone the perceived differences for some of these other things. And so it's I think it's. It's one of the, the the challenges and the opportunities of, of of a state where you have you know so many variations along so many different axes. We end with the same question for all guests: Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? 
I think I've been asked this question before, and I, I think I've given different answers at different times in my life, which probably says something about the nature of the question. But I think my answer today is going to be John Steinbeck. Um, he is one of my favorite authors, but I think in the spirit of, of our conversation today, I think one of one of the reasons, um, and this is actually a, a quote that I, I, I printed at the beginning of my PhD dissertation, on climate change is a, is a passage from East of Eden, which reads, during the dry years, the people forgot about the rich years. Then when the wet years returned, they lost all memory of the dry years. It was always that way. And I think that was written about California a long time ago. Um, it's every bit as relevant today as it was then, and it may uh, be even more relevant uh, in the future. So. That's that's my climatologist perspective uh, on a on a famous literary Californian. Daniel Swain, thank you so much for being on What Is California. It's been great having you here. Thanks for having me. All right, and that is a wrap on episode sixteen. Thank you very much to Dr. Daniel Swain for joining me. I really appreciate it, and thank you, dear listener, for subscribing, sharing, and just checking out this labor of love. I really appreciate you and I appreciate everything you've done to help this podcast grow since the launching last September. We're coming up on uh, almost five months since we launched. It's hard to believe the growth and the kind of reach that we've attained in those five months, but it's because of you that we have done this and it's because of you I continue. So thank you very much. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Ayersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find What is California on Twitter at WhatCalifornia, and you can subscribe to the What is California newsletter via Substack at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. They get you a free newsletter with a new podcast episode every Thursday and roundup of cool weekend links, cool stories about California every Friday. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you feel like chipping in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and keep the headquarters cat fed, I would so appreciate it. And so would little Elsie over here. She's just kind of in the corner saying, support us on Patreon, please. No, seriously, she's, uh, that's what she said. I heard her. I would love it if you emailed, just checked in, said hi, or anything else you got anytime at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. And of course, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked What Is California, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find the show. And it's, you know, sometimes it's a little pat on the ass you need to kind of keep everything going. That's going to do it from What Is California HQ. Thanks again for joining me. I will see you next time. Remember, until then, as always, keep your eye on the bear.